0: Hey what's going on it's Chris Carino this is the voice of the Nets podcast today we're going to introduce you to another interesting person on the Nets basketball staff one of their new hires but not new to the area Jay Hernandez a New York native is now full circle Back in the area as an assistant coach, but also full circle in his journey to the NBA that has a connection to Jacques Bond, And you'll hear about that here on this episode of The Voice of the Nets. Um, Jay Hernandez played at Hofstra, was once recruited by Tim Capstraw, my radio partner. And you'll hear some uh, Capper mentions in here. I, I think there's about three Capper mentions in here. So you'll want to stay tuned for that. But uh, Jay Hernandez, a developmental coach, that was sort of the reputation that he has coming to the Nets. And that's something that didn't exist all that long ago. NBA teams have staffs now of developmental coaches trying to take their young players and make them better. It's a big part of NBA basketball operations staffs. So we'll talk about his role his background, and his basketball journey. It's Jay Hernandez right here on The Voice of the Nets. So, Jay, I got to admit, the first time that I heard about you, you had just started working with the Orlando Magic, and my longtime radio partner, Tim Capstraw, the capper, he knows you from working out in Long Island. He recruited you when you were in high school, And he pointed you out when we were in Orlando and he said, that guy is a great coach and he should be on the Nets radar. He's a New York guy. He should be on the Nets radar. I just wanted to get that out off the bat. He is
1: the best. Uh I was just telling the story that when he recruited me, I had no intentions of going to Wagner. Uh I wanted to get out of the area. Uh, but he nearly convinced me to go there just because of his personality, the type of person he was, the coach he was. Um, and um you know, basically wrote me a 12 page letter and he's the <laughs> one coach that I remember uh, having to reach out to and feel really bad saying I'm not going to that school. And uh, we've we've kept a really close relationship all these years.
0: You just didn't want to you just didn't want to get up at 530 a.m. to go to the some gym off campus, <laughs> right? Because they were doing construction. It was I told him he told me that story about how he had to practice because they were doing construction on the gym and the you know big tenure of his coaching staff. And I'm like, how did you get anybody to come there?
1: Right. It, it was all him. I, I, I'm, I'm sold on that. You know, just uh, all personality. He got the most out of his teams. Tremendous coach. So, uh, yeah, I would have I would, I gotten up 530 for him. But uh, at the end of the <laughs> day, I had to go a different direction.
0: Uh, now, he was he was recruiting you. You were at St. Dominic's in Oyster Bay, Long Island. Mm. Right? And yes. I will say, though, you are not... No, all respect to you. You're not the most famous basketball coach to come out of Saint Dominic's no. in uh, in Long Island, correct? <laughs> Uh, that
1: is correct. They, they have a, a plethora of, of coaches that have come out of that small school. Um, one of the reasons I picked it was because it was considered more of a basketball school. And uh, yeah, Rick Petino, obviously, mm-hmm. and now at St. John's and uh, Ralph Willard, uh, Jimmy Christian, you know, coach at Boston College. Um, my high school teammate, uh, James Moran, Jimmy Moran, um, is in the NBA right now as well. So there's a, there's a lot of us out there right now. So it's, it's they pretty cool to be a part Well of it. represented. Yeah.
0: And, and it's Rick Petino stealing your thunder as a coach coming back to the New York area. This year, that's right.
1: I'm hoping. I'm hoping that uh, he can he can make it live again in Queens, and uh, that was yeah. always something that we loved at Hofstra playing against St. John's every year, and having that little mini New York rivalry, along with you know teams like Iona and Manhattan College. I mean, there's just a lot of good basketball here, so it's it's nice to see uh, great coaches sticking around and being a part of it.
0: Don't forget Fordham. I have to throw that in there because I'm a Fordham alum. Yeah,
1: okay, yeah, they were. <laughs>
0: at that time, we, we beat them, but uh, yeah, we'll put them in the mix as well. <laughs> I'll tell you this, is the first time I met Lou Karnasekka was I, was, I was a Fordham student doing a game at Hofstra, and Louie was just there in the gym like, watching the game, and, he, and, he, and he, we had him on at halftime, and I actually yeah. got to interview Lou Karnasekka as a college kid That's at awesome. Hofstra gym. Um, yeah, he's an icon. Trying to think, you you were you were you were not at Hofstra at that point when I was there. I mean, I was you're a little younger than me, Um, but you didn't go directly from St. Dominic's to Hofstra. You right? You made a stop over at New Hampshire first. Yes. So, why did you go to New Hampshire, and then what eventually brought you back home to Hofstra?
1: Yeah. So I had a, a good mix of mid majors coming. Uh, to me late um, in, in my recruitment. You know, Davidson ended up coming out. Um, San Diego, we played in a tournament there, above the rim uh, classic in La Jolla. Um, and then there were a bunch of you know, kind of mid-majors in the area that that started offering. And um, for me, I wanted to go somewhere where I knew I could play right away. At the time, they had a really good uh, hospitality management school, and I was thinking about that. Um, they had built a new arena, and so I was thinking, okay, this could be a good scenario plus – it played all the Eastern Seaboard schools. And so my family, you know, could all be at the games. And, uh, that was, that was a big, big part of it as well. And, uh, when I got there, I realized quickly it was a hockey school. It was crickets for basketball. And, uh, we ended up winning seven games that year, three at the buzzer. So, uh, it could have easily been four, but, um, it was a definitely a really good experience. Uh, Hofstra, at the time uh, wanted to redshirt me because of uh, Speedy was coming in the same year. And so I grew up playing against Speedy. I knew how good he was. And I was saying, well, I can go to these other schools and play right away, compete against these guys. And um, I was okay with that at the time. But, you know, once I saw what they were doing and who they were bringing in and how they were operating under coach, and uh the time was, you know, Joe Jones, Brett Gunning, who was uh, also in the NBA, uh, Tom Picour, who's now Quinnipiac, uh, just a great staff. I was like, that's probably where my fit is at this point in terms of my style of play and things of that nature. So when I made that call, I ended up redshirting anyway and uh, ended up going and getting my dual MBA and, and we had a pretty good run there with with Coach Wright.
0: Yeah, Coach would be Jay Wright, of course, the famous yeah. uh, coach who'd go on, to coach at Villanova. And then, you know, you mentioned Tom Pecora, who, uh, who was an assistant there and then took over for Jay Wright at Hofstra, then later went to yeah. Fordham. And now up at Quinnipiac, where he just took over. Uh, I think it was uh, Dunleavy just left there. Um, but you also mentioned Speedy—that Speedy Claxton, great Christ the King player, right? And then he went yes. on to Hofstra. Um, unfortunately, it, it, the 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 you bring up a, a sour note there for net fans, the true net fans, because as you know, I, I know Speedy Claxton was a great New York City product and played at Hofstra. Um, it's a sore subject because in he got a ring with the Spurs in 03 yeah. at the Nets' expense, and you know people think of and I was there courtside for that one, my second year mm-hmm. in the league, and Game Six in San Antonio, Nets are as close as they've ever been to an, M- an NBA title. They're they're in a Game Six. They're down three two. They have a sixteen point lead in the third quarter of that game. And the Spurs go on a 19 nothing run, bridging the third and fourth quarter to win the championship. And it wasn't Manu Ginobili going off. It wasn't Tim Duncan going off. It wasn't Tony Parker, who was a rookie, going off. It was Speedy Claxton who yep. came in with that second unit and just lit up the nets for an 18 nothing run. And I'm still, I am still, I think I'm still cleaning confetti out of my, my <laughs> bag that I had that night.
1: Yeah, no, it was, uh, I I try to tell that story, you know, it's 20 years ago now. Um, you know, obviously when it happened, he just uh, tweeted about it. And, um, yeah, I wasn't even thinking about it now that it was the (laughs) Nets, but I, uh, I remember being super proud of him and and happy for him that, uh, he was able to represent kind of the, uh, smaller guards, you know, the mid-major guys. And, uh, yeah, he really did a great job in that series and that set him up for, for the remainder of his career. So you played together. Yeah, we played together for for two years. We were in the backcourt together for two years. And then uh, when he graduated, um, we had seven seniors coming back. So I think the story goes, uh, Jay Wright had an opportunity to um, accept the Rutgers job um after Speedy graduated but uh he held on He said I think we can we can repeat and win another championship I he, I think he was always eyeing Villanova and we had seven seniors coming back Norman Richardson um Brooklyn product as well made the NBA was a part of that that roster and um we were just very seasoned group and you know we competed at a, at a really high level so um you know we had a really good year that year ended up losing in the NCAA tournament to UCLA that year but um you know we had some some pretty good moments
0: that season What do you recall about playing for Jay Wright what stood out to you
1: What stood out to me mostly was um his attention to detail you know and then his uh ability to get everybody to buy into the bigger bigger cause. And so by, I would say mid to late season, you could see us firing on all cylinders and there was no question marks about, you know, what your role was and um whatever that role was, you didn't feel like you were in a diminished role. You felt like you were part of something big and that you were chasing greatness and um we were all in it together. So um I think that's where his ability lies, is his ability to connect with everybody um, and be able to get the most out of his players. So a guy like me who could never dunk, never dunked in a game, uh, could compete at a very high level against some of the major Division ones because he gave me that confidence that, um, you know, you can do this and, uh, you're going to lead us tonight and do it your way. And that was always his thing, especially after Speedy graduated in the nicest way possible. He just said, you're not Speedy Claxton, you know, you're Jay Hernandez. And, uh, we expect you to be that for this team.
0: Well, you couldn't dunk, but you could defend, right? I mean, you were, I, I <laughs> yeah. you, you were all defense, you were the, the defensive player of the year in your conference, correct?
1: Yeah, for for the point guard from the point guard position, which is you know okay. a difficult thing to do. I tried to again. That was the confidence I had from my teammates having my back and and the style of play that that Coach Wright instilled. Um, you know, I was able to pick up full court all game. You know, I was in tremendous condition at that point in time. And um, yeah, I I learned a lot from just them in terms of uh, technique. You know, having the conditioning and then uh, the the hard aspect of it and the the want to do that definitely came from my father who played 13 years in Puerto Rico, was on the national team there. And uh, he was a two-time defensive player of the year in that league from that position as well. So, um, you know, I always took pride in
0: being able to play both sides of the ball. There's your father, Richard, who, so where did he play college?
1: So he went to um, Dowling College in Long Island. And, um, you know, he went to Adelphi Academy in Brooklyn. He grew up in Canarsie. So, Mm. um this is uh, definitely kind of a full circle moment for for that side of the family. Yeah. Just having me back in Brooklyn, and uh, you know, there's a lot of excitement there.
0: And now I know you're you know your your father's of Puerto Rican descent, and yeah. he was he played professionally in Puerto Rico, and you spent some time you were very young, but uh, you had some experience living in Puerto Rico and and seeing your dad play. What do you remember about that? I just
1: remember how how competitive um, it was at that time, um, how exciting the environment was. I remember running around with our mascot in Bayamón, and uh, you know, shooting shots and the crowd going crazy. You know, so like bringing my little gym bag to go with him. So it was uh, playing bitty basketball on the outdoor courts there. It was it was a lot of fun. I remember when we came back here, back to Long Island. I was about seven years old, so it was probably around. Two and a half to to close to seven, um, and and getting to just see him do his thing, and you know uh, it was it was awesome. You know, I always wanted to go back there and play and, and kind of uh, represent my dad, and you know, be be a part of that experience as a player myself. Uh, it, it was a really cool experience.
0: Yeah, which you did right after after yeah. Hofstra. Well, you had some time, but you you end up going and playing professionally in Puerto Rico. Yeah. So um, what was I know you that that league is competitive, right? I mean, that's a that's a pretty good league. It's produced a couple of pros in the NBA. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was your experience like there playing in Puerto Rico?
1: Yeah, it was great. Uh, from a standpoint of guard play, it was always really competitive. Uh, even one of the times when I was there, Carlos Arroyo was playing. Um, you know, and they had uh, a number of guys who were veteran guys that actually played with my dad. That were on the tail end of their career, who were you know Hall of Famers. There, um, that were part of that experience. I, I try to tell people the the toughness factor. Um, you have to be tough to to be able to play there. You have to be super skilled. Um, you know, there's a bunch of guys from the States and then, you know, you have guys like myself who, you know, um, maybe grew up in the States, but, you know, come from, um, you know, Puerto Rican background, uh, can go there and play. So you end up having like four guys that are, you know, kind of from the States that are playing there with the guys that are, that are from PR. So, uh, for me, it was really cool to kind of, um bridge that gap for the guys that came, you know, from the States and, and be able to communicate with, uh, with the players that were there as well. And, um, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to captain two of the teams that I was there for, so that was a big honor. And um, yeah, the coaching as well. You know, I tell people that just the level of coaches are phenomenal there from from that area. And my father was coached by some some great coaches. Um, you know, including Flora Melendez who who was there, and then um, you know he was uh, PJ Carlissimo coached him, Gene Barto. Um, you know, Phil Jackson got a start in that league. So um, there's a lot of history
0: and tradition. So you mentioned the coaches and and the influence you had there in Puerto Rico. You you don't go directly from playing professionally in Puerto Rico to coaching. You you kind of you did go back to Hofstra, but it was not to coach, correct? You went back and, and worked in the administration.
1: Yeah, um, I was director of strategic planning in admissions. So uh, they offered me a job. They like the way I represented the the university and they said, we'd like to have you here. I was going for, uh, actually I finished up a dual MBA in marketing and management. And so while I was doing that, they said, you know, we'd love to, to have you be a part of this still. And I accepted a, a position. Uh, I was going and uh, doing all kinds of projects for the president of the university and uh, traveling, going to college fairs and doing all of that kind of stuff. And so uh, I did that for about eight or nine months and, uh, I ended up getting into pharmaceutical sales right after that, so I did that for two years. Um But all during that time, I was doing basketball training, and a lot of people, didn't really know what that was at the time. You know, mm-hmm. it was a pretty new industry. Now, everybody talks about player development and things like that. But um, back in 1998, I started helping my dad, uh, who was the first, I guess, trainer out of Island Garden in West Hempstead doing stuff on these side baskets. And so uh, I, I just fell in love with helping kids get better. And most of the kids I had, they had money and their parents understood what lessons were, you know, from a standpoint of either tennis lessons or a pitching coach. So they're like, oh, this makes sense. You can help my son or daughter dribble better, shoot better, that kind of thing. Um, eventually, it got to the point where those players were getting better and people were seeing the work and say, well, I want to try it. Early on, typical New York, I was like, why would I pay you? I'm already nice. Like, I'm not <laughs> going to pay you to play, you know, to, to work out on my basketball game. So, uh, But within a short amount of time, I would say in about five, within five years, people started seeing players and be like, oh, that's a great move. Who who do they train with? And it started to become more of a thing. Um, So yeah, after two years, I asked my wife, I said, uh, do you mind if I give up this uh, gas card and car and benefits and all that stuff to try to make this a real business? And I ended up going to Puerto Rico one more time. um, And then I came back, had some clinics and camps set up and gave ourselves about six months. And I started a company called Pro Hoops in 2004. And, um, you know, I took off. So I was, I was very fortunate that my wife was uh, okay with me trying to venture into uh, a new area and, and gave me that confidence.
0: Did you uh, have somebody or some player that would be like the, the tipping point for you with that as a player development, you know, business and school? Somebody that uh, kind of all of a sudden people went, wow, that guy went and then, you know, kind of the, the dam breaks
1: yeah, I mean, uh my first pro was Wally Zerbiak. Um,
0: so I grew up playing yeah, Long with Long Island Wally. The Long Island guy with a with a father who played professionally, kinda I yeah. see the pattern. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So uh, he and I grew up playing in summer leagues together, playing pickup basketball a lot over at Saint Mary's. And um, you know, when he got into college, she started realizing I was I was doing some of the trainings that I I could use some of the ball handling stuff that you do and, you know, I need to get my shot off quicker and things like that. So we just started working out uh kind of together. And then when it got to the pros um, instead of me working out with him, it was more of, uh, I started training him in certain areas and, uh, you know, then we did a VHS together, you know, for, for the young kids, uh, you know, uh, uh, started doing that DVDs and stuff like that. But, uh, we put a whole workout tape together to show kids how to train and it was phenomenal. He actually did the whole workout without any cuts or interruptions it's one of the coolest things you know if people can find it that you'll see an actual pro making a ton of mistakes and that's what we wanted you know wanted people to see like the raw footage of uh this is an nba all-star playing with alongside kg and everything like that and um you know he came out to to work with us so that was great just to have him Kind of solidify that, that, you know, I helped him in that journey. But I mean, at the end of the day, it was all him. He just, you know, was a phenomenal talent, phenomenal player. And, um, and then from there, it was just little by little bits and pieces of different players that were coming through the program. Uh, we started getting a bunch of New York kids, uh, from all over and you know, all the boroughs were started coming out and training. Um, and then I was, I would take trips to go see Jameer Nelson in Philly. I'd drive, get up early in the morning, work him out. So anything I can do to show everybody how dedicated I was to you know, basically basketball yeah. training and helping players get better. I did it at that time to just keep growing the business so um yeah, it definitely took off. We started getting sponsorship deals. I had six trainers working with me and uh we ended up getting a bunch of pre draft through uh excel sports, so we ended up having probably uh eight ladder picks in a three year span you know where fifteen players um you know get drafted so it was it was a good run there and that was towards the tail end um of my uh, business career in in training and uh, got me to get to the NBA level. You yeah, know?
0: Uh, Tobias Harris a part of that as well. Yeah, yes,
1: he was. Yeah, so it definitely. Guys like Tobias, he was a part of my first pre draft class. Um, And I I have a picture of him when he was in probably eighth or ninth grade with a bad posture defensively, sitting in the back of a clinic that I had. And um, yeah, guys like that just really helped solidify what we did. You know, him, Charles Jenkins, Kemba Walker were three of my, my guys, uh, for, you know, the longest of time, you know, where we had them pre-draft and I saw them through their journey at the NBA level until I got to the NBA. So, uh, yeah. very fortunate, you know, and, and it, what was great about it is we had, you know, a bunch of veterans that would come back and work alongside these guys. So guys like Ada Gaines and uh, Rajah Bell, you know, uh, Sylvan Landisberg, you know, the, the list goes on of guys that would come back into the gym and work out with the young guys and help them get better. So it, it really, uh, you know, solidified that family atmosphere we were trying to go for.
0: Yeah. And that, and that world was starting, you know, was, we mentioned that players are taking notice and um, that you're, that you're a guy that can get them better and get them to the NBA, uh, coaches started to take notice as well. And one of those coaches was Jacques Vaughn, who is in Orlando, um, and Orlando had a lot of lottery picks around that time. And, um, and they were, they were interviewing a lot of these guys and working out potential draft picks. And, you know, your program starts to come up a lot in, in these talks, uh, and I think they kind of look and said, Hey, uh, maybe we should look and we're going to have a lot of these young players that were, that we're trying to develop. Maybe we should take a look at this Jay Hernandez guy. And, uh, and they called you down you do you do you recall how that all came about with you ending up getting your first coaching job in the NBA with the magic and Jock Bond?
1: Yeah. To this day, I still think it's, uh, an incredible story. You know, I, I always give Jock a lot of credit because, uh, the way he handled it and the way it all went down was was phenomenal um, but I think the the start of it was Tobias Harris getting traded to Orlando. He ended up having a, a really good run um, for the remainder of that season there I think probably averaging over eighteen a game you know during that stretch and uh, that summer he said he was going to be back in Long Island working with me and so Jock had sent uh coach gunning Brett gunning ended up coming out he was an assistant with Jay Wright and uh, he was my assistant coach in college uh, was an assistant for jock. So he came and watched the workout and he went back and said, he's in good hands. You know, he's working with, with Jay, you know, I've known Jay a long time. So, um, that was the start of it. And then, yeah, I think there was maybe like a, a two year run of a lot of those lottery picks going into work out. Um, for Orlando, and he would ask, where are you guys working out? And they, they kept mentioning, you know, where were Jay Hernandez, Pro Hoops? And so we ended up just, uh, it was great. Myself, uh, Jock, James Borrego, and Brett Gunning had a dinner um, in Little Italy. And um, it wasn't it wasn't a job interview or anything. It was just more like, hey, we want to get to know your, like, practices and, you know, how you got into this, and just more, like, intrigued. And uh we, we hit it off and um you know, maybe a few months later a position opened up and you know, I said, would you be interested in this? And at the time I said, yes, um, with no intentions of taking the job. I really just wanted to see if I can get an offer and what that offer would be. And then, you know, great, you know, down the line, I can, I can use that as leverage for something else. Cause I, I really thought that I would be running my business for the rest of my life. My wife was a tenured teacher in New York, you know, mm-hmm. so, uh, moving one town over for her was a big deal, uh, let alone going to Orlando. So I just kept saying, yes, let me, let me keep doing this. And then as we got closer to everything, um, again, just the way Jock handled everything he's like, listen, I know you have camps and clinics set up. Uh, we have a young team, but I want you clear, clear minded. I want you to make sure you divest properly and uh, we'll see you here in September. So at that point in time, it was just a two year deal because Jock had already been there for two years and, uh, you know, my wife Allison said, you know, go do it for a year. You know, my my daughter was a senior at, at St. Mary's. They were going to uh, potentially win a state championship. So we didn't want to disrupt any of that. Um, so I opted to go try it out, you know, put the NBA on the resume. And if it didn't work out, I would have that almost like a doctorate, uh, you know, on my, yeah. on my resume uh, for basketball to come back with and build some connections. And that, that was kind of, my mindset at the time. And um, so, uh, yeah, I gave it a shot. And like I said, me coaching now, um, if I hired a coach for that position, I'd want them here yesterday to work with all those young guys. Because, I mean, it was a who's who of lottery picks that were there, you know, with Vucevic, Aaron Gordon, Tobias, uh, Fournier, Alfred Payton, Oladipo. I mean, Mm. the list was was, went on and on. So uh, it was just a lot of good, good young talent, really good guys that really wanted to be in the gym and work out.
0: Uh, I have a couple of things I want to go back to. First of all, did you remember where the dinner was? Was it Angelo Tormina? Where where was the dinner at that time in Little Italy?
1: I don't remember. Yeah, you okay. have to you have to get that one from Jack. Yeah,
0: uh, but <laughs> <All right>. yeah. <laughs> um, and the idea of going to the NBA was that had that been a dream for you? Was that something that perked you know like peaked like went oh wow these guys wow, I could be in the NBA or you know. What, was there was there a real tug-of-war between wanting to stay and doing what you were doing?
1: Uh, no, that was a real tug-of-war for me. Um, I guess it was maybe two years prior when uh, Glenn Grumwell was the GM at the Knicks. He had me come in and interview, and I was part of a, a final interview process there. And, uh, again, I just wanted to go through the process for the experience of it and, um, you know, see what they were talking about when it came to player development. And so that was just a, an incredible experience. And then, uh, the following year, um, Jay Wright brought me to Villanova and offered me a job there as an mm-hmm. assistant. Um, the timeline there was a lot quicker. So he was like, Hey, you know, take the weekend, talk to the family. We'd love to have you here. You know, we're trying to build this thing. Um, you know, kind of, differently you know in the past in the past few years they were getting a lot of uh, top-tier talent because they had success but he was saying no you know what we need to get Villanova guys here and we want to win a championship here at Villanova the way we want to do it and um, it was a tremendous honor but I told coach I said I you know you know me I just can't leave people high and dry and uh it's going to be too quick of a decision for me to make so you know I'm going to pass on it and at that time I remember him saying like well I feel like you'll be in the NBA sooner than later you know because of what you're doing Doing and you know the the way the NBA is going right now, they'll value what you what you have to offer. And uh, at that point in time, that that got the wheels turning a little bit. Like, okay, if something did come, would I be able to properly divest and make sure that my trainers were still taken care of? And uh, could I? convince the family to move and all those kinds of things. So at that point in time, I would say that started to plant the seed for me in Mm -hmm. regards to maybe getting into coaching. But um, no, it was not an easy decision. You know, I think most people would just jump at the NBA, but, you know, for me, um, being able to run the business the way I had, I I just had a lot of fun doing it, uh, built some great relationships. And um, again, my family was set living in Long Island with my wife teaching. So uh, eventually to have her give up her tenureship was, was a huge deal. And so, uh, uh, like I said, just the way that Jock handled it, the way the Magic were were dealing with the situation, you know, gave me the utmost confidence that they were really looking out for my best interest. And, you know, when I got there, it was all about learning, you know, the NBA terminology, the way they did things. And it was a, a night and day difference for me, even though I had been in basketball, you know, my whole life pretty much. I felt lost for the first time in basketball, you know, not knowing exactly what they were talking about in meetings and, Mm. um, not having much to offer at that point in time, you know, and eventually I was like, I just have to ask. One engaging question, you know, to get the, gym, you know, the room talking and let them know that I'm, I'm here. So, uh, that was my first goal. And then, uh, second goal was just to learn everything I could about how to dissect the game and, you know, put scouting reports together when I didn't have scouts at that point in time. I was working on scouts on the side as if I was going to present it to the team. Um, so there was a lot of things that I tried to do to just better myself and get really acclimated to the NBA lifestyle.
0: So when you came in, were you, cause, cause, I, I, you get tendency now for guys in the coaching pipeline in the NBA is we have developmental coaches. Uh, you kind of get that reputation of being a developmental guy. Um, yeah. Is that a tough transition then to try and get the reputation of being an all around NBA coach? Or or is it sometimes do you do you uh, do you wear that? title of developmental coach with pride and know that that can maybe get you further um, than other guys?
1: Yeah, for me, you know, I know that's going to be my strength and what got me in. And so, um, yeah, I'll, I'll always have that as as part of uh, my fabric and who I am and, and how I can get on the court and sweat with guys and build that sweat equity. Um, you know, I think that um, a lot of the creativity that I've had within my business and running a business and my creativity that I had in terms of putting workout programs together for players to help them get better. I started to take that and transition it over to scouting reports and how do we defend a guy like Jokic? And, you know, what, what are we going to do offensively end of game when the team goes to zone or they, they take out their five men and they switch one through five. So I felt like a lot of that was a smooth transition for me, but it takes time to develop that reputation because early on, you know, you could look at me and say, oh, he's a great, you know, ball handling coach and he gets these guys really good with their, with their handles or, you know, we've seen the shooting uh, increase for Tobias Harris from year one to year two working with them. And, you know, obviously he's got, he can help guys get better in that area. Um, and within what was happening in Orlando, they had to be, there was a lot of turnover there. So every year I was starting almost fresh for what that new coaching staff might, might know me for, even though I had a whole year, but by the end of the year, I maybe had been doing more. They only know me for the player development guy that was hired. And so each year was just, uh, playing my part, uh, learning exactly how each coaching staff wanted to do things and then started learning again, their terminology, the way they were defending actions and things like that. And finally, when I got my opportunity to start scouting, and doing those kinds of things um I felt more prepared to do that but um I always tell younger coaches Find what your weaknesses are and figure out a way to attack them and put yourself in front of people, you know, do coaches clinics, uh, attend coaches clinics, uh, read different books, not just on coaching, but on marketing, on sales, uh, leadership. Um, and then from there, you know, I, was, I had opportunities to coach in summer league. I had an opportunity to coach in the G League bubble during an NBA season. And, you know, I just always tried to find ways to um, enhance my ability to become a better
0: coach. Well, that was ended up being with Charlotte, right? When you, yeah. now you, 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 you mentioned James Borrego was on Jacques Vaughn's staff there in Orlando. He started working with him. He would eventually go to Charlotte. Um, you end up at Charlotte and then you're, you were kind of overseeing, that's where you recently were overseeing player development there. Um, yeah. what now led you to Brooklyn? How did that, we talked about famously, Jacques Vaughn recruiting you to the NBA. Um, how did it end up this transition now to to come back home?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think for me, the experiences again that I had in um, in Charlotte, I think definitely opened some eyes to to people around the league again that say, okay, he's just not a development guy. So for my first few years, I, I carried the title of. Um, you know, director of player development. And so, um, we had some tremendous success with our young guys there and, you know, developing some, some really good young talent. Um, you know, we saw, Increases in a lot of areas. Um, you know, offensively, as you know, was, was one of the major areas, you know, shooting and things of that nature. And, um, you know, Coach Borrego did a phenomenal job with with those young guys. You know, Jay Triano did a great job with the offense there as well. I learned a lot from him. You know, he's with Sacramento. They're, they have the number one offense in the league right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so by year two, you know, uh, we were doing offense and defense. So we had, you know, we broke it up that way. So I was on the offensive side of the ball. Year three, I got to coach in the G league bubble. Um, you know, year four came back, um, back on the offensive side of the ball, you know, doing uh, after timeouts, you know. So for a few years, I was doing all the ATO situations with with Coach Borrego. So it was in game, seeing things happen and seeing them unfold. And then last year with Coach Clifford, um, he just gave me a tremendous amount of work to do. Uh, great for my my growth as a coach, um, I learned so much from him. And, you know, every day we talked about, you know, ATOs and special situations, you know, both offensively and defensively. And during that time, I was always communicating with Jack. You know, he was just somebody that I looked to as a mentor. Um, he's just a, a great human being. And um uh, so anytime I had decisions I needed to make professionally, you know, I just would reach out to Jack and say, hey, this is what I'm thinking about. What do you think? You know, I've, I've got this offer to maybe coach overseas and uh, I'm going to do the G League thing. And so we would just talk about different different aspects of things every time, um, you know, he had something going on or, you know, he was, you know, changed over from an interim to actually getting the role here. You know, I'm texting him and congratulating him. So we always stayed in contact. And I think part of that was uh, him seeing my growth and, you know, knowing what kind of energy I'm going to bring, uh, to the roster and you know a lot of this is is the kind of chemistry you have as a coaching staff and um you know so i i think that's what it ended up leading me back here you know it was just once once uh he knew that there was going to be um some openings you know i've got got the call and um, you know the rest is history
0: was it uh an easier sell to come back home for your wife uh, than it was to leave new york and go to orlando 100% yeah <laughs> yeah this is uh
1: you know, when I first, uh, I had to keep it even quiet for my family because I didn't want to get anybody hopes, hopes up. And so, um, you know, finally when we, we knew it was going to happen and we told everybody, uh, everybody was just super amped up about it. And, uh, yeah, now that we, our kids are older, this will be the first time we're doing the empty nester, you know, high rise thing in Brooklyn. We've always had houses in the burbs. So, uh, you know, this is, uh, it's going to be a great experience and we're looking forward to it.
0: You know, you mentioned that your connection to uh, Jay Wright having played for him and then him recruiting you trying to get you at Villanova and kind of knowing what he wanted to build there. um, you having something in common. Mikel Bridges obviously played for Jay Wright at Villanova. And you know, he took he had a he has a system there. You know, at Villanova kind of he had a reputation of you know, no one's greater than the team. It's not, we're we're not having these star one and done players. We're building a program of guys who are going to stay here for three, four years um, that are going to be really good fundamentally. And I think some people look at that and say, well, we're not, you know, you're not building pros, but at the same time, then look at all the pros now that maybe weren't as heralded coming out of high, high college But when you look at what Mikael Bridges has done, when you look at what Jalen Brunson has done and uh, Josh Hart, players like that, um, is there, was there, what was, what's kind of the secret sauce in that? And that may have influenced um, you as a young, as a college player. I mean, I think you mentioned a little bit of it before about knowing your roles and things like that. But if you Mm -hmm. could, if you could sort of uh, break it down as to what's important about player development. And what you learned from that situation that you bring into you currently right now is this position with the Nets.
1: I think what I learned is that the players have to be accountable to their development. And, you know, that was the biggest thing. You know, coaches are responsible for helping you. But ultimately, the ownership comes from the player. And I think he, uh, Coach Wright, did a great job of Getting players to understand that you need to lead yourself and you have the ability to lead others in your own way. And I think you see that from the, the type of players these guys are. Some are more vocal. Some are a little bit quieter demeanor, but they all lead. And so I think they, they lead themselves. They lead others. And I think that's the biggest thing that, that you'll get from. A point guard or anybody really who's played for Jay, you know, I I, I ended up playing that point guard position for him and being a captain under him bears a lot of weight. So if, you know, the walk on gets in the game and doesn't dive on the floor, the walk on isn't getting yelled at. I am. Because I was the one diving on the floor all game and I should be the one going at, at that guy about, why didn't you dive on the floor at the end of the game? Even though we're up 30, it doesn't matter. You know that's that's how we play from from beginning to end. So um, yeah, I've already had some some good talks with uh, Mikhail about you know my time with Jay, his time, and um, not much has changed. It's just he's he's gotten you know better players over the years. You know, obviously at Villanova, but um, you know it's it's still the same same principle. You know, the processes may change some, but his principles are, are very consistent. And the message has always been attitude for for Coach Wright, and uh, they put attitude on a big sticker above every locker room door. Uh, we had it all over Hofstra when we were there. I know they have it at, at Villanova, and uh, that's, that's where everything stems from.
0: As a player development guy who worked with young players preparing for the draft, you have a, you have a keen sense of probably when you walk in the gym uh, of, of who these guys are and who's going to make it, who's not. What, are, what would be mm-hmm. some things that you would look at right away to determine whether or not this is a player who's going to make it in the league.
1: Yeah, I think it's a lot of it comes down to how serious they are when they come into the workout in regards to their conditioning. You know, if you see guys that within 10 or 15 minutes are already gassed, I'm like, this guy is not taking this serious enough. Um, Are they confident in their strengths? you know they're they're in the in in our gym for a reason and a lot of times they go work out and they try to show everything that they couldn't do for 4 years or 3 years or 2 years in that workout and um you know so for me I I want to see guys that are confident in their strengths um uh, that communicate well you know all the little intangibles for me uh make a really good n b a player you know at the end of the day, the small things are, are everything you know when it comes to being able to fit uh a roster and so um for me, I think being able to see just guys understand how to play, not trying to prove um, I'm at the park playing one on one the whole time. It's, you know, within the confines of this. What is, what did coach, what was the direction? Could I follow the direction? Is there a joy for playing the game? I think that, uh, the players that love to play, um, or, and, and have the potential can go a lot further. You know, we always say that uh, the person who loves the walk is going to go a lot further than the person who loves the destination. And so, you know, when I see that from players and they're out there genuinely enjoying the experience, even though it is a pressure cooker out there, um, we know that at the NBA level, with all the big games that are going to be out there, that that player is going to be a guy that we can rely on down the line.
0: Confident in your strengths. It's kind of a theme here to this conversation, I feel like, because um, you think about, you, you knew what it was that got you to the NBA as a coach. I mean, you knew what it took to get you to Hofstra. You knew what it, you know, you you talked about Jay Wright, you know, kind of the old Doc Rivers line, you know, be a star in your role and convincing guys to, to know what it is that you do well and, and do that. You know, you embrace the, the player development coming into the NBA and knowing that you weren't hired to be, uh, you, you eventually you were you may have eventually been good at the x's and O's and things, but that wasn't what you were hired to do. You were hired to be a player development guy and be you know yeah. a strength in that role, and it seems like that's the same message you have to players. Yeah, you want to get better and do things you that you' try you know work on things you're weak at, but being you know finding strength in what it is that you do well is important, yeah. I think in any any way of life.
1: Without a doubt. I think uh, if you look at anybody who's been great at anything, they have known strengths and the opposition can't do anything about it. So, you know, that's always the biggest thing for any of the players that I've worked with or any of the players that I've had a chance to connect with is, you know, it doesn't matter if they know what it is that you do because you're going to be so great at it that they can't stop it. You know, it doesn't. And so I think once you start to believe that and uh, you start to work on that stuff and then you start to see okay my go-to move is this I can get to that and then here's my counter Uh, I start to realize um, wow just off of those two things alone I can do a whole lot here you know against uh, smaller defenders bigger defenders it really doesn't matter and um, I think like again for me It's being able to bridge that gap over the summer of like, let's, let's continue to build, you know, certain aspects of your, your weaknesses so that you can eventually be confident enough to do that. But don't let people off the hook. You know, I think that's what happens when you start working with players early on. They want to show what they've been working on. And, and it's a substitute for what they've been great at and what they've, what got them to that point. So I never wanted to substitute the strength. I want to make sure that it complements it at the end of the day. And, um, you know, over time we'll get there. You'll see, you'll see big improvements from, from a lot of players. And that's the one thing I, I've seen here over the last few weeks is, um, you know how how great of a staff we have here currently, and um, how everybody's connected from from the top down. And uh, you know, f- for the first time, you know, I can I can see that as a more of a holistic approach, and uh, that that's exciting to me.
0: Do you have a, a a defined role in the staff yet? Are you at that point? And is it different? How how different is it from your previous stops in Orlando and Charlotte?
1: Yeah, we haven't uh, talked about defined roles yet, you know. So right now, I'm just working on different projects and uh, looking at uh, some 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 strengths of what other teams have done. You know, coming up with my my idea bank, and uh, you know, we'll talk as a staff, and you know, we'll have our coaches retreat and kind of just hash out some things there. So I, I'm looking forward to all that. Just bringing you know my years of experience and and working for a lot of really good coaches. You know, that's the one thing that. Um, you know, you start to look at it. And when I had all the changes that, that happened, I was like, man, how do I grow individually? But I actually grew a lot because of the people that I got to work with and know over the over the years. Um, you know, a number of them, current head coaches in the NBA, uh, former head coaches in the NBA. And, um, you know, so I, for me, it might be something that I haven't been able to utilize in five years or six years, but you know jock may say hey we want to try this out this year and you know i might be like okay cool you know this is what maybe scott skiles did you know back when and uh, might be something to to look at in terms of how we're going to grade defensively uh stuff like that so um yeah so i i'm looking forward to it like i said i'm I'm here for the long haul and uh just looking forward to
0: to being a part of it uh when you work with james james Barrego was i believe the first hispanic head coach in the nba if I'm not correct. Yes. And, and, you know, you you talked about, we haven't really gotten into a lot of where you've done the Puerto Rican, uh, you know, the national team and things like that. But, mm-hmm. um, how do you view that in terms of, uh, you know, thinking about your heritage and what that would mean if you someday became a head coach?
1: Um, I think it'd be great. Obviously, um, anytime, um, there's representation and, you know, uh, and I always talk about diversity of experiences as well. You know, just, uh, you know, my background coming from training and running my business lends itself to a bunch of people, you know, and say, well, that's a a path that I can take. And, uh, same thing. I just, uh, the amount of people that reach out to me that, that feel a tremendous amount of pride that, you know, I'm of Puerto Rican descent. Um, the, the first assistant coach on the bench, um, that 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 has you know that that is a Puerto Rican descent, so uh for me, being able to play in Puerto Rico um be able to talk confidently and um uh, uh, just you know knowingly about what that is and you know what that means there um because there are a lot of great coaches that um could have done this you know better than I can right now, and um just never had the opportunity so you know for me to be able to keep climbing the ranks and and be uh the first to do it you know I think would would mean a lot to a lot of people, and hopefully uh we can see more coaches uh
0: get an opportunity to to be at this level yeah see it to be it That's yes an expression I always like to to use um before I let you go i always I always wrap up with this uh quick thing, speaking of uh New York basketball coaches, you remember the great Jim Balvano and his espy speech about um never give up something that's always yeah. uh, resonated with me um, but he said in that speech that to have a full life he said everybody should do three things every day they should laugh cry and think uh, so i i wrap up always with this uh jay hernandez what makes you laugh
1: um my kids make me laugh actually you know I did, we, every day we have a family chat and uh between the memes and you know the different uh clips that I get um I would say between my kids and my wife we just uh, we love each other but we we like each other a lot too you know and that that's not always the case for everybody so for for me uh I would say they they make me laugh the most
0: I love that uh the the cry part is not always something that's just sad but it moves you emotionally everybody c- should kind of have their emotions stirred um what's something that maybe recently or in general uh, gets you emotional um
1: again it's uh family is the fact that uh you know we uh, my, my wife and I are making this journey for the first time um uh, on our own uh Every other stop has been with the family together, the, the five of us. So uh, I would say that's bringing, that's definitely tugging at the heart now and, and having that transition happen. Um, you know, they're all doing great things. And, uh, you know, that's, that's part of our job as parents is to see them grow and, and expand themselves. So, uh, but that's definitely something that, uh, that's, that's, that's weighing on me.
0: And you have a daughter that actually went to work for the Hornets, correct? That's correct, yeah. She stayed. Uh, Michaela.
1: Yeah. she's there she's staying she's uh loving loving her her job and um yeah in january she started full-time and uh, she was pulling me for interviews, and uh, I loved just, just having that that interaction and you know ignoring her at times and you know having her <laughs> run after me and not know what to call me you know so I, we would always <laughs> joke like you can't you can't say yo 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 you know you got to make sure I see the coach Hernandez you know so we, we were trying to you know have those like dinner talks about that, but um yeah, she's doing a phenomenal job creating creating her her own lane in this industry
0: uh finally the think part. Spend time and thought. What is, the Oculus outside Barclays Center is something that everybody in the neighborhood can see. Walking around Brooklyn, coming up through the subway, coming into the arena. If you could put a message on a, that board for all these thousands of people, millions of people, to uh, to see something you wanted people to think about. What do you think that might be?
1: Um, for me, it always comes down to like uh, chasing your own greatness, and uh, I'm big on improvement. So. Um, I think it's important to people to be themselves. Again, we talked about confidence in your strengths and, and confidence in your abilities. And I think, uh, you know, one thing I stand by always is that uh, no one, whoever accomplished anything great was ever considered normal. And so I think that, um, you know, just be you, be, be abnormal in, in the way you uh, attack life and, you know, how you love people and, you know, uh, you know how you work uh, at your craft. So I think that, that's, that's the message.
0: Well, Jay Hernandez, like I said in the outset of this, um, when I when I saw that they hired the Nets hired you, uh, I immediately thought back to that conversation Tim and I had when we first he first pointed you out in Orlando, um, and it's uh, it's a nice uh, circular uh, story here to get you back home and in Brooklyn, and we really look forward to having you around the team, and I look forward to getting to know you, and I thank you so much for uh, spending some time with me here today.
1: I appreciate it. Thank you for the time and uh, definitely look forward to seeing you at Barclays.
0: All right. My thanks to Jay Hernandez here on the Voice of the Nets podcast. I want to plug another podcast that just started recently, a limited series. It's going to be five episodes. Hope you're tuning in. If you're a Nets fan, it's a must listen. It's called Something to Prove, the story of the 2002-2003 Nets. Those are the two teams that went to the NBA Finals. It's an oral history of those teams. You're going to hear a lot from Rod Thorne, the architect of those teams. Uh, players, including Jason Kidd, uh, broadcasters like Ian Eagle and myself, are on there, the capper, Tim Capstraw. It's narrated by the great Bill Raftery. It's so great to hear Bill's voice uh, associated with the Nets again. So check that out. Uh, something to prove. The story of the 2002-2003 Nets, uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Tom Dowd worked really hard on that, so did Steve Goldberg. So uh, please check that out. My thanks to those guys as well. And uh, Isaac Lee, our engineer, we'll talk to you again next time right here on the Voice of the Nets. I'm Chris Carino. Take care.